This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta and this is The Pulse. It has swept the globe. COVID-19 has grounded flights and moored cruise ships, put unprecedented strain on healthcare systems around the world. Thousands are under lockdown. Many have been sickened and ultimately succumbed. Once considered to be someone else's problem, this virus is knocking at our door. And we need to act now to flatten the curve, but we need to act together. Mount a global response. And I don't just mean worldwide knowledge sharing and research, though that is important. We all have a part to play. Whether we are the International Olympic Committee or a major travel company or the United Nations, today we discuss some transnational perspectives on responding to COVID-19. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joyita Gupta. I'm the host of the program. And as we've been doing for the last couple of shows, we are taping this show remotely from home. So I'm working from home, as is Sam Robinson, our technical producer, and Andrika Delanerol, working remotely from different parts of the city of Toronto to bring this show to you. I just want to say that the conversations you're about to hear are both pre-taped and were recorded a few days before the actual air date. In addition, because we live in downtown Toronto, specifically I live in downtown Toronto, if you hear some construction in the background, please bear with me because pandemic or not, it turns out that construction goes on and on. I thought that we've been talking so much about COVID-19, but more and more people are talking about needing to respond in a coordinated global fashion. And I wanted to take some time to explore these perspectives of what an international, coordinated, global response to this pandemic might look like, and what the implications of taking such a worldwide perspective might be for people with disabilities. We've talked about the need for a transnational and inclusive disability movement, and I think those conversations are particularly salient at a time of crisis like this. So today, we'll be hearing from two people, both of whom should be familiar to you. In the second half of the program, we'll hear from David Wilkin, a UK-based criminologist and researcher specializing in hate crime studies. He'll talk about life in the UK for disabled people under COVID-19, as well as the increase in hate crimes against various marginalized communities. But first... We all look forward to them, the athleticism, the pomp and ceremony, and the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo were no exception. However, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, and the government of Japan have announced on Tuesday, March 24th, to postpone the games that we are we were scheduled to have. Now, we are about to hear Stephanie Dixon, chef de mission for Canada's Paralympic team. We'll get her reaction to the announcement and also hear what she has to say about the decision by the Canadian Olympic movement not to send athletes to the games that were supposed to take place in Japan. So a lot to talk about with Stephanie and she joins us today from the Yukon. Stephanie, welcome to The Pulse. It's wonderful to have you on the program. Hi, good morning. Thank you. 
So one of the things you noted is that Canadian Paralympians, like other athletes, want to do their part to practice social distancing. But you also were quite candid about saying that athletes might be particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. Can you expand on that for us? Sure. Yeah. You know, we have some para-athletes with compromised immune systems, and they are extra vulnerable and at an extra level of risk for contracting and the symptoms of COVID-19. And so, you know, we're concerned about all of our athletes and recognize they're in a very difficult position wanting to prepare um, to either qualify or compete at the Games, but also they need to keep themselves, their families, and the wider community safe. And so this was a position we did not want our athletes to be in. Mm. And what you're referring to is, of course, the the recent decision by the Canadian Olympic Committee and the Paralympic Committee to not send athletes to the Games in Japan. But let's be honest. I mean, if you're a training for these Games, you put in a lot of time and a lot of effort as an athlete. So I'm sure there was a bit of disappointment. But was there also a public education component to all of this, Stephanie? You know, there's, there's a couple things on this, is that it was not a drastic decision. It was almost like in so many people's minds, like, finally. So there is disappointment, absolutely. But there's been disappointment ever since the pandemic started. And there was an idea that possibly the Olympics and Paralympics couldn't happen this summer. And as we get closer and closer to when the Olympics and Paralympics would have happened this summer, it's scary to think that these games might continue to go on. And we were expecting our athletes to prepare for these games in in a crisis. Like, it just, mm-hmm. it, it, it didn't make sense. It wasn't ethical or responsible to ask our athletes to continue training. A lot of sports cannot train while maintaining social distancing. A lot mm-hmm. of massage clinics, physiotherapists, doctors, they aren't working right now. So how will our athletes have the proper supports to train if they were even able to in isolation? So, and then, I mean, qualifying events. On top of all of that, most qualifying events have been canceled. We have not even named half of our team yet. And so it's, it was a really, really difficult position to be in. Um, and it was not fair to ask our athletes to choose between staying safe and healthy for themselves and their families, their community, and their Olympic and Paralympic dreams. So it was incredible to see how quickly the Canadian sports system mobilized. Um, you know, it was the Olympic side, the Paralympic side, the government owned the podium, athletes, all of the sports, high performance directors, everyone came together. And on this specific call, Nobody opposed this decision. It was mm. amazing to see everyone come together. Everyone recognize this is the right thing to do. Of, of course, there's disappointment. The world is turned upside down right now. And people's hopes and dreams and livelihoods, they're all uncertain right now. It, it's really, really tough for everybody. And athletes are included in that. But to have the Canadian sports system come together to choose to treat athletes like humans first to keep them as safe their well-being over medals and performance it was an incredible moment in canadian sport history and i'm very proud Mm -hmm. to have been a part of that and stephanie let's just say for a moment that the canadian olympic committee had decided that covid19 or not we were going to get send our able-bodied athletes to play and to compete where would that have left the canadian paralympic team would you have uh, pulled out in any case 
You know, I think that it's just great that we don't have to consider that a scenario because, you know, I think that we're Team Canada and we we consult each other. We want to make decisions together. We're one team. We are one nation. And so we're going to move forward together. And that's what we saw in this decision. Um, and I think that we also wanted to see the world come together. We're one, we're one global community and we want to keep everyone safe. And, and so by advocating and pushing the IOC and the IPC to postpone the games, um, we've also seen the results of that. Today, they said the Olympics and Paralympics will not happen in 2020. And that's exactly what we were asking of them. And so, you know, we saw Canada come together on the Paralympic and Olympic side, and now we're seeing the world come together on the Olympic and Paralympic side. And, you know, we're, it, sport is sport, and, and humans also like Sport is sport, but also humans are humans, and human well-being has to come before sport, and mm-hmm. we're seeing those priorities take place right now. And do you think that this shift in priorities will be something that athletes and management and even the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, will be more cognizant of moving forward? Because some people have argued that the decision has taken too long. Well, you know, Team Canada made that decision that we would not compete this summer because we did feel the IOC and CBC were taking too long. We felt it was unacceptable, and we we did not feel it was ethical or responsible to put our athletes in that decision or in that position to have to choose, will I go to training today? How do I figure out how to do this? And potentially kind of skirt around the social distancing regulations. And no, no, we do not want our athletes to feel that way. And we did feel that the IOC and the IBC were taking too long and it wasn't fair on our global community or our athletes. So Team Canada did step up and make that call. Um, and we saw some other countries speak out as well. And then I think that is what pushed, you know, Canada taking this leadership role really pushed, mm-hmm. you know, the international movement to postpone these games. And Canada can be very proud of that. And, Indeed. And to your yeah. other point, like move, moving forward, I believe this entire pandemic will change things moving forward. How we prepare for global crisis, how we view sport and the precautions and procedures that are put into place in case anything like this ever happens again. And, you know, I guess that's always the silver lining of of devastating situations is now we have this experience and we will do better next time. You know, I hear from when I watch news conferences, I feel that I see frustration boiling over from the medical officer of health or even various politicians saying you got to go home and stay home. You know, enough is enough. Stop going to the shopping mall. I want to acknowledge that Canadian Paralympics have come a long way. It's not a fringe sport. These athletes are not marginalized. These are national heroes and sheroes, I guess. Um, Are athletes (laughs) taking are athletes taking up the charge in terms? terms of educating the broader public, putting out messages and encouraging all of us to stay home and flatten the curve. Absolutely. I've been so impressed seeing there are so many Canadian leaders in sport taking to social media and saying, you know, I'm staying home and I have my Olympic and Paralympic dreams on the line. Please also stay home. It's not worth it. There is nothing that is more important than keeping ourselves, our country and the world safe. And uh, I think it was Marnie McBean, the chef de mission for the Olympic team, came out and said social distancing for the win. So, you know, put, but it's also stay connected because some people have come out and said, you know, it's not social distancing, it's physical distancing. We can mm-hmm. be social without being physically close to each other because we have to stay connected. We need to take care of our mental health and a lot of that is being socially connected. So, you know, post videos of how you're staying healthy and active while maintaining 
physical distance and then come up with ideas on how to stay connected. You know, there's a lot of people doing workouts online, people posting free training sessions online that you can do from your house. And so it's not at all about, you know, showing preparations for the games anymore. It's athlete leaders stepping up and saying, you can stay healthy and active while staying safe for you and your families. Oh, that's great. And you'll be pleased to know that I am doing push-ups at home every day to stay in shape, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. That's great. <laughs> and listen, I have a question to ask you because I remember talking to you on AMI Audio when you were appointed chef de mission for Canada's Paralympic team. That was a, a while back. And it's fair to say that this, mm. is, this whole pandemic is probably not something any of us would have seen coming, least of all you. What has it meant for you personally in the leadership role that you've occupied within the Canadian Paralympic movement? Hmm. You know, that's such a great question. You know, my my time as chef was was for Tokyo and and it would have been, you know, finished at the end of Tokyo. So uh, this summer, uh, if it had gone on as planned. So now I think I'm in the same position a lot of people are in. And it's like, well, what does this look like moving forward? And, you know, will I continue to be chef moving forward? And and no matter what happens, I will be a leader in sport in Canada. I believe so much in our sport system and I believe in the power of sport and that every Canadian has the right to be healthy and active and should have opportunities in sport and I will continue to be a voice. So I think everyone in the entire country is wondering what does the next year look like? What does the next week look like? The next month, you know, we're all living in very uncertain times and so no matter what it looks like in title or um you know, in, in the day to day, I am certain that I am a lifer in our Canadian sports system. I will be a leader and an advocate that sport is amazing. It adds so much to our life and it is a right for every single Canadian. If sport is amazing and it adds so much to our life, what can it add to Canadians who are feeling vulnerable and uncertain at these times? What can you take away from sports and the stories of athletes that can sustain us in what's to come? You know, I think Paralympic athletes have this incredible ability to be such great role models for all Canadians. You see people with such diverse um, lifestyles, diverse bodies, diverse situations and conditions that they're in. And it is something that everyone can relate to. It's overcoming adversity, overcoming feelings of inadequacy, depression, wondering how do I fit in? How do I stay healthy and active? And so we we should turn to our Paralympians and, and, and follow their lead because so many people are coming out on social media and, and, and showing this is how you stay connected. This is how you stay healthy and active. And we all can do it, but we need role models. We need examples. We need to stay connected and feel that we have other people out there who are feeling and experiencing the same thing that we are. So our Paralympic athletes are going to step up. They already are right now and be leaders in this really difficult time. Thank you so much, Stephanie. We really appreciated that you took a few minutes out of your day to speak to us. Take care and be safe. You as well. That was my conversation with Stephanie Dixon, the chef de mission for Canada's Paralympic team. Let's go a little further afield as we explore transnational issues in responding to COVID-19. You might remember Dr. David Wilkin. He joined us on the program a while back to talk about disability hate crimes on public transit in the UK. We decided to catch up with David and see how he and other people with disabilities were faring in UK given the spread of COVID-19. David had some interesting observations, including a spike in hate crime. Here's our conversation. Hi, David. Welcome to The Pulse, or should I say welcome back. How are you doing yourself given the spread of COVID-19? Has life changed for you quite a bit? 
Uh, yes, it has. Um, not particularly personally, but but little things that we get used to in life have, are no longer there. And um, you know, the little um, things that we build up and the little schedules we build up every day have been completely thrown into turmoil. So, you know, shops are closed. You can't meet certain people. You can't walk certain places. So there's a lot of changes going on. What about people with disabilities in general in the UK? What are you hearing? What, have, what has the impact been on them? Well, there have been several impacts. Um, we have a, a category of vulnerable people in the UK, uh, and that includes many people who are disabled, and they've been asked to socially isolate for 12 weeks. That is to stay indoors and stay away from other people so that any infection is not transmitted or retransmitted. Um, this is causing um, mental health problems, it's causing loneliness uh, and making life generally worse. Um, there is a website that these people can use if they can't get hold of medicines and food, but that's expected to be overwhelmed and potentially abused. Local authorities should be delivering uh, special requirements and medicines for people, but this hasn't really been tested yet. Um, so everything's happening in a hurry and vulnerable people are being left without contact and without um, supplies they need in some cases and they're feeling very lonely and some people are feeling depressed. Also, um, when uh, using the normal retail outlets and shops, um, times have been set aside for vulnerable and disabled people so that they get access to retail outlets, but quite often that's abused by other people going in and doing their own shopping and having no respect for people with special needs who might need time in the store to, to get their own shopping. So Let me stop you there, David, because you're speaking to the need for uh, government intervention in this situation. Do you feel that the government of Boris Johnson has done an adequate job of addressing the concerns that you've raised specific to the disability community? In truth, I think they're doing as much as they possibly can. This situation, like in every country, has been foisted upon them with very little notice. Uh, and, and I think many countries haven't really got the tools to look after the entire population. Um, and I guess it's difficult to think about every category of people. And they're just making broad brush approaches to looking after people without thinking about specialist niches of, of people in the community. So I think they're doing their best. I don't think it's been thought through fully, but there again, they haven't had much time to think it through fully. So I am sympathetic that they're doing the most that they possibly can. And, uh, and problems are being uncovered on a daily basis. And some of them are being addressed and some of them are not. So, David, when you joined us the last time, you spoke to us about the incidence of hate crime. And I want to turn our attention there because I would like to know if there's been an uptick or an increase in hate crimes towards marginalized communities. I've heard of some people talk about this as the quote unquote Chinese virus, which is obviously inaccurate. But have you seen an increase in hate crime towards marginalized communities? Yes, I have. There have been an increase in, in uh coronavirus hate crimes. It's a, it's a new phenomenon, I think, that, that a section of the community is being victimized because uh, others perceive that they are responsible for the virus. Um, I know that Chinese people have been attacked and accused of bringing the virus into the country, and they have been victims of hate crimes. 
Um, and yet there are apparently spikes of this every time world leaders mention perhaps that these are foreign viruses. Um, then, you know, within a short spell of time after that, people of uh, oriental appearance are targeted because of their appearance. And that, that attack is linked with um, bringing the virus into the country, which is obviously not true. Well, that's pretty shocking. But, you know, when we spoke the last time, we did zero in on hate crimes against people with disabilities on public transit. I guess the question begs to be asked, are people with disabilities still in a position to use public transit or paratransit? And if so, are they now facing heightened discrimination and greater a greater incidence of hate crimes as the public gets increasingly tense and worried? Uh, public transport in the UK is hardly being used at all at the moment. Many people are taking the advice to stay inside their homes um, and therefore many modes of public transport are virtually empty. Public transport is being scaled back at the moment to reflect the fact that fewer people are using it. Um, and I think because of that, that when disabled people are using public transport, they're actually seeing a reduction in hostility against them because there's nobody else on board the public transport to create mm. the problem. So I think that disabled people are actually having better journeys at the moment than they were when the public transport was fully utilised. And I find that in places like Canada, we are seeing more people working from home, so they're telecommuting to the office, or you've got students taking courses online. Do you feel that some of these things that were previously seen as special or accommodations for people with disabilities will become more mainstream, thereby eliminating barriers to accessing employment and education for people with disabilities? I mean, getting past COVID-19, do you actually see a brighter future for people with disabilities? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Because it, 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 I think viruses like this, not that we've had them too often, fortunately, I think mm -hmm. change cultures. Uh, and I really think there's a cultural change going on now because it kind of levels up the playing field for disabled people when many able-bodied people are in exactly the same position of um, taking online lessons, for example, or, or participating in message boards and blogs. Because... That way, um, disabled people are not usually at a disadvantage and they can uh, express themselves uh, in some kind of equal way. And it may well be that this can produce a great enlightenment in terms of education at all levels, where we can take away the physical classroom and move perhaps towards the virtual classroom, which offers greater equalities to some people, but of course not everybody. The other interesting component that I've observed in Canada is that usually we see quibbling between different levels of government, but they seem to be working fairly well together and we see less polarizing discussion and divisiveness in public discourse and political discourse. Do you feel that one of the changes that will come out of this, likely to the benefit of people with disabilities, is cohesive action from different levels of government, whether it's the municipality or the borough or, you know, the, the central government in the UK? Do you see these different entities maybe working in step moving forward after COVID-19? Yes, it does look like it in the UK because um, most of the information seems to be coming from the Prime Minister. They give regular um, press briefings which are uh, on national TV uh, and it seems that there is a, a collaborative way forward. Unfortunately, what that's also leading to is mixed messages. Sometimes 
the messages from the top are not powerful uh, or clear enough. And that's leading to many questions being asked. For example, people are told that they're vulnerable and should remain in their home for 12 weeks. Then people ask, who is vulnerable? Who isn't? Um, why am I not vulnerable? Why are you vulnerable and somebody else isn't? So quite often the messages are strong and clear, but then as soon as people start thinking about the information, even more questions arise which are not answered. So the national press bulletins are very strong and very powerful and immediate, but the questions that arise afterwards are often not dealt with. And if they are, it's some time later that these points are actually um, dealt with. Well, as you pointed out, David, I think none of us really saw this one coming, including government, and everyone's doing the best that they can. I just want to thank you for taking a few minutes out of your day to speak to us on the program and sharing some of your perspective and filling us in on what's life like for you and for people with disabilities in the UK. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. And, Bye-bye. And I hope you stay safe and be well. Thanks again. And, and same to you. That was my conversation with Dr. David Wilkin, a researcher and criminologist based out of the UK. If you missed my conversation with David Wilkin or my previous conversation with Stephanie Dixon, the conversations you heard today are available as a podcast and can be downloaded from your favorite podcast platform. While you're there, don't forget to check out some of our previous episodes of The Pulse and tell your family and friends about us. Don't forget to like, rate or subscribe. I have many interesting thoughts about the need for a transnational response. One of them, I think, has to do with the need for increased coordinations between nations. We've got to acknowledge that Canada, with its public health care system, its many resources to bring to bear on the situation, is probably in a much better position to tackle the spread of COVID-19 compared to countries with less developed social safety nets. And so a global response becomes doubly important. One of the things I didn't get to talk about is the role of technology in fashioning this transnational response. Do companies, multinational companies of that, have a role to play? I'll have some reflections on that on the show blog, ami.ca forward slash on the pulse is where you go for some additional thoughts. I'd like to thank my guests today, Stephanie Dixon and David Wilkins. The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delanerol, Sam Robinson, Andy Frank, the manager of AMI-audio, with special thanks going out to Paula Deneen, the supervisor of AMI-audio technical who enables these remote broadcasts. Thanks also going out to the many frontline staff and service workers, including caregivers, who are doing essential jobs to keep our economy going at a time like this and allowing the rest of us to live our day-to-day lives with minimal disruption. Thanks for listening to the program and being a part of the conversation. Find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI if you have something to say. Also feel free to write us an email, feedback at AMI.ca, or pick up the phone and give us a call. Apparently it's in fashion again to call people. So. 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And uh, let us know if we have your permission to play the audio on the program. Whatever your means of communication, please feel free to reach out. And everyone, stay safe, be well. Until next time, this has been The Pulse on AMI-audio, and I've been your host, Chuita Gupta. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, 
Visit AMI.ca. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.